0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EI-TV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com.
1: Well, I'd like to thank you all for coming uh, tonight to the launch of the Thought Out project and to uh, Editorial Intelligence's October EI Club. I'm Professor Sarah Churchwell, and I'm a Professor of American Literature and Public Understanding of the Humanities at the University of East Anglia, and uh, tonight is about the public understanding of the humanities and not necessarily about American literature. Is that half of my job. And I just wanted to say a few words before we launch our, uh, our discussion tonight about what this project is, what we're trying to do, but before I do that I need to offer some thanks First to Editorial Intelligence and Julia Hobbsbaum, who have partnered with us for this event and have been absolutely fabulous as always, uh, and who are uh, many of you know well, and I'm sure will want to come to other Editorial Intelligence events in the future. I'd also like to thank the people who have contributed to our website, which I'll say more about in a moment, some of whom are here and for taking a punt on what we're trying to do, and obviously to everyone here for coming. I also would just like to thank UEA for sponsoring this initiative, and especially two people, uh, Professor John Charmley and uh, the managing editor of our website, Siobhan Hoffman-Heap, who both been working really hard with me to get this off the ground. The idea of the Thought Out Project is that we want to promote accessible writing about research in the humanities specifically, but also more generally in academia, in ways that engage with the wider culture, and to fight for the importance of expertise, in a world in which celebrities are increasingly taking the role of experts, but to recognize that expertise happens in both uh, the so-called ivory tower and the so-called real world. And I actually think those are both imaginary places. As far as I'm concerned, we're all in the same place. And I am hopeful that this website, which is behind me, I hope, um, might facilitate some conversations. The idea is simply to get academics blogging their research and. Uh, starting a conversation about their ideas, about the kinds of things that they're doing, but not locking them behind paywalls that, as many of you will know, uh, you have to have an institutional affiliation to get access to, or you have to pay uh, 30,000 pounds annually, which I know we can all afford just to get some research, or $35 for an individual article, which uh, always seems prohibitive, to try to get the ideas out there and to start a conversation or to facilitate a conversation that's already happening about the role of knowledge and ideas, and indeed about how we get thoughts out. So that's the website, it's thoughtoutproject.com. And we have, we've just invited uh, people to contribute, academics right now, but also uh, non-academics, to talk about what interests them. So um, we have uh, an article from Heather Brook, who I, I'll say more about in a moment, who has written a piece about hero worship, talking about Jimmy Savile and uh, Julian Assange and the uh, problems that we have with how we view heroes. But we also have a piece from a woman who teaches humanities, uh, I think she's a history lecturer, but is working on culling deer. She's a vegetarian and she wrote a piece on why we should all be eating more venison um, from uh, from a research based, from a project that she's been working on. Uh, we have Professor David Brown, who I think is here tonight, has. Uh, thank you very much, uh, has contributed a piece on the neocons invocation of uh, Lord Palmerston and has actually uh, written from a position of expertise about Palmerston, about what Palmerston actually did and what this conversation really means. So it's a wide range of, of what people know about and the ideas that they want to share and our hope is that you'll find those ideas stimulating and want to join in the conversation. Our simple USP is that our ideas don't need to be controversialist. And they don't necessarily need to be pegged to the news, although certainly we, want, uh, we are hoping that the ideas that we're sharing will be relevant to, uh, to other kinds of cultural conversations. So the first part of the project is the website, thoughtoutproject.com. The second part, if, this is, if I'm going to get this to work, I'm not sure what I have to point this at. Do I point it at you? Okay. Um, Is a series of lectures with Heather Brook, who I mentioned a moment ago. Many of you will know Heather Brook's work. She's an award-winning journalist. She is the person who took Parliament to court over freedom of information, and it's thanks to her uh, fight, her long fight, that the MP's expenses scandal was revealed. She's also one of the people who helped break uh, Julian Assange's WikiLeaks cables um, uh, the story about the WikiLeaks cables, and her she's coming to do a series of lectures for us about propaganda, about misinformation and propaganda, the age of misinformation, which would be the next series of events in the thought out calendar. So for her first lecture, she will be um, actually she and I will be talking about the ideas surrounding propaganda, uh, PR, and politics. For her second lecture in January, she's going to be speaking with Margaret Heffernan, who is an author whose uh, brilliant book *Willful Blindness* um, has. She's been invited to give TED talks and uh, various other kinds of conversations around this, and to think about the role that will, that our willful blindness might play in uh, how propaganda is taking over public discourse. And then her uh, the next lecture after that will be about the police and propaganda. And so there's always a through line here about how propaganda is, is infecting or distorting public discourse and uh, how there's going to be bringing in various people to talk to her about that. So that's the next series of events, and there will be other panel talks and uh, discussions that we'll be sponsoring along the way. So that's just to give you a sense of what it is that we're trying to do, and in order to, uh, to start us off, we thought that we would have a conversation today about the problems surrounding open access and accessibility, what does it mean for elite ideas to be accessible? So that's what I'm hoping that this elite panel will help us discuss. And so uh, thank you all for listening, and I will turn things over to our chair, Marianne Seacart.
2: Thank you very much, Sarah. Well, uh, welcome to Open Access, Can Elite Ideas Be Truly Accessible? Uh, You've all made it this far, so that's a good start. As as Sarah said, we've got a highly elite panel tonight. (laughs) I'm sure they can make their ideas accessible to the rest of us plebs here. Um, I'm guessing that they'll partly be talking about accessibility in the intellectual sense. Is it necessary to dumb down to get your ideas understood? Or indeed, as a journalist, I would say surely you can make your language more understandable without actually diluting the strength of your ideas and use less jargon. Um, Or do we actually underestimate the intelligence of our readers and our listeners and our viewers? Uh, As a society, are we not actually brightening up rather than dumbing down. Many, many more people are going to university than did 30 or 40 years ago, and there is a great thirst for intellectual pursuits such as going to literary festivals, uh, debates like Intelligence Squared. I expect they'll also be talking about financial access, which Sarah already has. I'm sure many of you have shared my frustration when I stumble across an article in an academic journal which seems to have exactly the facts I need for a piece that I'm writing, and boom, there's the paywall. And I pay $35 and then discover it hasn't even got the facts I need in it anyway. Uh, It's become very frustrating. You're probably also frustrated if you Google my former colleague, David Aronovich, and find that none of his Times columns are online. Uh, or if you uh, click on a link to one of his magnificent columns from a tweet, say, and find that you've got to pay in order to read it. On the other hand, how are journalists like him and me to make a living if everybody expects our work to come for free? So plenty to talk about tonight. We have a very fine panel. On my far right is Orlando Figes, um, very well-known historian, Um, I've even got his biography here, if I can find it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Professor of History at Birkbeck College, University of London. He's the author of seven books on Russian history, which have won loads of prizes. And his latest book is about a a true true story of love and survival in the Gulag. Mm -hmm. Sarah has already introduced herself. Uh, Tom Holland here is another historian and author. Uh, He's written about the Roman Republic, about the Greco-Persian Wars, Uh, Millennium, The End of the World and the Forging of Christendom, and his newest book, In the Shadow of the Sword, is about the collapse of Roman and Persian power and the emergence of Islam. And finally, David Aronovich, as I say, former colleague at the Times, He's also worked at The Guardian, The Observer, The Independent, and the BBC, and wrote a top book uh, debunking conspiracy theories. Let's start with Orlando.
3: Thank you, yes. I thought I'd um, start by addressing the issues about uh, open access as in the government proposals to break down the paywall, um, and I'm sure it will bring up a number of broader issues. I- I've been reading up on this, having started from a position of fair ignorance, um, and trying to work out what I think, and I think my thoughts on it are quite, are quite mixed, actually. I mean, certainly I think for the sciences, uh, the, uh, medicine, engineering, and so on, the, the benefits are self-evident. And more generally, I'm in favor of, obviously, the, the democratization of knowledge as far as that's possible and the government's interest in impact for all good reasons. And, you know, being at a place like Birkbeck, I cannot but be in favor of breaking down the walls of the academy to some extent, or at least making making them more um, more accessible, making, making university more accessible, knowledge more accessible, and hopefully, is, People already suggested if academics are going to be writing for an open access um, market, then maybe they'll begin to write a little bit better too. I also think, actually, that there's probably just too much published, maybe not a great thing to say, but too much published and put into libraries which can no longer house um, books in their old form. So it's probably a good idea that, the majority, if not all, academic publishing in journal form should be electronic. Though where that leaves monographs, I don't know, and it's not clear from the government proposals whether monographs, academic monographs, which are basically the, the starting point for nearly all academic careers, um, whether they would be open access too. I, I dread to think what would happen to the academic profession if they were. But having said that, you know, generally it sounds like a good thing if for the sciences, especially, and perhaps the humanities, too. I have four issues with it, which really do trouble me. And the first of them is obviously the question of funding. Um, the government says it's setting aside 10 million pounds um, for the financing of what, what is called, in, in the jargon, um, uh, what do they call it they 're making they call it making article processing charges in other words what 's going to happen is that the universities and research councils are going to have to fund the publication, not um, the purchases of the journals, as with the paywall um, so it 's a little bit like that sort of AJP Taylor joke, isn't it? It's like, like uh, being invited to write f- f- for a newspaper or something, being told the fee would be £40, pounds, and he says, <laughs> yes, and who do I pay? So, so academics really will now be paying via the universities and research councils to publish. But the £10 million being put aside by the government doesn't nearly cover the estimated £60 million pounds of processing the current stock of academic journals out there. So it's not clear where the shortfall is going to come up from. Maybe this idea of a green uh, open access, in other words, of, a- of ac- academics and universities uh, providing a store, rather than putting everything out there, would be uh, a cheaper, and more viable alternative. I'm more troubled by uh, the second issue for me, which is the-, the rich-poor diversity in universities, which is something increasingly um, of concern now with the government um, ref and f- funding uh, uh, council policies being to favor the elite universities. Clearly, if the universities are funding the publication of their academic works, paying for it, then the richer universities will be able to fund more academics to publish than the poorer universities. And that's going to make life especially hard for young academics trying to start out who may not get funding from their universities to be published, especially if they're doing more risky research or research that won't count on the REF, which is the means by which the government decides how much money to give to the universities. Uh, moreover, there's a problem of, you know, how are Latin American universities, African universities, third world universities going to promote academic research if they can't, get, if they can't afford to fund their academics' uh, publications? Uh, the quality issue I'm sure will come back to, but it does concern me too. What is going to happen if, um, if, if, if journals have an incentive to accept all articles because they're being paid to publish them? Won't quality controls be lowered? It seems to me it's obvious they will. So I can see perhaps um, peer review editorial input being reduced even further than it has been in, in recent decades. I mean, does anybody edit anything anymore? I begin to wonder. Um, so yes, I'm more concerned about the, the quality of language, the quality of editing, more than I am about Dumbing down, as such, I think ideas will carry their own weight and be accepted or not on their own merits. But I am concerned about about editing. But the last issue really concerns me perhaps most, and it's purely from self-interest, which is the IP, the intellectual property issue. I'm worried that universities, if they're paying for the publication of their academics' research, might claim begin to claim the intellectual property of their academics research. And I've seen this already in emails uh, that I've received from my own university, which I think I, like every other academic, has ignored, (laughs) claiming that it does own the intellectual property of my publications. Well, you know, are we going to end up with a sort of nationalization of academic writing, owned by their universities and potentially by governments who fund them? I dread to think. But more immediately, there's also the concern of, of copyright. And um, This is a general concern, that open access may lead to a general, a gradual but general erosion of, of copyright. And the reason why I was particularly interested in this and agreed to come on was, I suppose, like many writers, I make a living supplementing my fairly small university um, salary by writing in the, for a commercial market. Um, And some of the books, you know, collect royalties from schools paying fees to (coughs) Xerox them or to use them, a block grant paid and collected through the ALCS. Well, um, the government review of last year would mean that that would no longer be collected, that all schools and universities for educational purposes would no longer have to pay for uh, uh, release of copyright. So that worries me. It, and I'm sure David and others will, will uh, r- bring, bring us back to this question. So all very well having open access, but who is go- who's going to pay the people creating the stuff?
2: Good. Thank you, Orlando. Sarah, you want to answer a couple of these points?
1: Yeah, I thought I just, I won't say much because I've already spoken, but um, just quickly, I think one of my concerns about the, the government proposals, which I'm, I'm sure many of you aren't familiar with, but as Orlando's just been explaining some of their consequences, but one of the things that they um, that they also will do is to widen the gap between what Orlando is, is referring to as REFable scholarship, which is to say the traditional scholarly stuff that's behind that paywall, um, or in an OUP, an Oxford you University. explain what REF, ref is? Sorry, yes, didn't. exactly. So this is what we're trying not to do, is to get too, uh, too bogged down in jargon. But it's very hard, because the government is driving these policies using this jargon. So the, the REF is the uh, research excellence framework. <laughs> and it's, the, it's basically um, a quality assurance uh, testing program of academics research that is there to try to, to measure the value of academics' output to make sure that people are uh, are producing and not just sitting back on a tenure job and not doing anything. So the idea was supposed to be that this would incentivize universities to have good researchers who then would be producing great research and then that would be rewarded. Um, and of course, it never that sounds like a good system, and of course, it never works out. And that they way. do
2: things like count the number of articles in peer-reviewed they, journals, they the number count of citations. citations of your articles. Okay. Um,
1: in, in, that's in more on the science. That's a little bit different in the humanities. But yeah, so what they're trying to do is to judge the quality and trying to figure out how you do that because it's very subjective and it's very difficult to make that quantifiable in the ways that they want to do. But so what happens as Orlando is Orlando's implying? So what happens is then academics. That's how academics get promoted, though. So there's a, a problem here about how the career is is uh, reinventing itself. But then what will happen is that now one of the things, one of the implications of this proposal is that people like Orlando and me who write books that we want to, to be accessible to non-academic audiences, so-called crossover books, that hopefully are, hopefully are intellectually credible to scholars but interesting to non-academics and accessible and written for educated but not specialist audiences will no longer count for promotion under these current uh, criteria. So what it will do is actually widen the gap again, which we've been trying to bridge, and to say, okay, there will be popular writing over here, journalism, and there will be academic writing over here, and the whole purpose of, of what we've been trying to do is, is to bridge that gap, and I think that's one of the, one of the concerns here as well. And the, But why would open access make that worse? because what it's going to do is it's going to say that, that people like us who write that commercial, that crossover stuff, it doesn't count, so we'll have to make a choice. What well, we won't... does it count now? Yeah, Okay. yeah. So it will actually, it will create a kind of two-tier system. Um, and, and it will actually, I think...
3: Well, it, it's, it's either that or it will take away all income from yeah. anybody writing right, these yeah. crossover books. because yeah, exactly. yeah. unless, mo- unless you make your book open access, yeah. it, won't count it won't count on count. Right. I see, yeah.
1: Okay. So I think that what that does is it, although it looks like it's a move towards democratization, what I'm trying to suggest is it actually in effect is pulling away from that because what it's going to do then is to to encourage academics to circle their wagons and go back into this very closed circle of refable research and then there will be this other thing over here called popular writing instead of uh, what seems to me the current trend of trying to say as as Marianne was saying in her opening remarks about the, the hunger for uh, you know, the, the audiences that we see at literary festivals and TED and Intelligent Squared and all that stuff, people want this. And what we don't want are to, to have structures that disincentivize it. Classic
2: unintended consequences. Unintended consequences,
1: yeah. absolutely. Tom.
4: Well, I'm finding all this very sobering because I, I was planning to adopt a position of absolutely cheery optimism. <laughs> um, Please do. Speaking of we well, diversity on <laughs> our spe- speak, First, uh, Speaking of someone who, who, who isn't enmeshed in the toils of the university system, it seems to me that um, British intellectual life is actually in incredibly robust health. I, I remember when I was at university um, lamenting what I then saw as British Philistinism, wishing that. Um, British academics could be more like Derrida or Foucault, complex, (laughs) knotty, absolutely (laughs) impenetrable. Um, But as someone who um, for the past 12, 13 years has um, basically, I've devoted my life to um, sucking up the lifeblood out of toiling academics and recycling it for the general public. (laughs) I've slightly changed my my, my perspective on this. What I find when um, I go abroad, say to Germany or to Holland, um, even to America. Um, I find that, that editors and journalists who I speak to are, are, are terribly excited by the kind of book that I've written, and that isn't a compliment to me. I think it's, it's a compliment to the English style of narrative history. Um, in in Germany, the presiding Eminence uh, of um, of classical history is Theodore Mobson, who, even though he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, is the epitome of the forbidding Herr Doctor Professor. Um, and that is absolutely the tradition that, that German scholarship still cleaves to. And the positive is that it, it, it results in a kind of high-minded seriousness that, that before which I stand in awe. Um, the downside, it seems to me, is that it, it, it results in a sense that um, historians are created rather in the way that lawyers or doctors are, that you jump through hoops um, you take your exams, you get your qualifications and that then makes you a historian. Now it seems to me that that in, in Britain that has always been um, there's always been a different take on that and I suspect that it, it, it goes back to sort of very deep seated intellectual and literary traditions that just as for ancient history, the, the presiding genius in Germany is Mommsen. For us, it's Gibbon. Gibbon famously uh, did not enjoy his education <laughs> at Oxford. Um, and the decline and fall of the Roman Empire was at the time cutting edge scholarship, but it remains, of course, a great masterpiece of 18th century prose. Um, and it seems to me that the result of that is that intellectual life in Britain has actually always been incredibly promiscuous in, in a very positive way. And if I think of the way that, um, at the moment, um, different traditions of historical writing, um, that the way in which, in which academic um, history writing reaches the public, that, that, that there are an enormous number of ways in which it does that. There is the, um, the way represented by Orlando and Sarah um, academics who have established a brilliant career within the university and who with a, a little subtle shift of the gear stick are able to present their arguments to the general public without dumbing down. I was saying earlier that it's a little bit like um, the, che- the, the sort of shift between hieratic and demotic in uh, ancient Egyptian script, <laughs> <laughs> but the language is the same, the script is just subtly <laughs> different. Then again, of course, there are those, I suppose, the, the, the representative figure is David Starkey, who established brilliant careers in the university and then went on to plow their own furrow in the media, on television, on radio, um, with books. And then there are people like myself, who never studied history, um, but who have been treated with immense generosity by the academic community. Uh, and The way in which I justify that to myself is that I hope that I am paying back the favour by presenting to the general public um, not just the narrative, the excitement of a given period, but the excitement of the very latest in academic thinking, conveying to the general public um, the fact that what academics do is incredibly interesting. And the great mistake that academics who write for the general public risk making is to imagine that just because the people they are writing for don't know as much about as they do about a given subject, that therefore they are less clever. Mm. The the best academic writers know that's not true. Mm. And I think the best popular writers know that popular history has to be at base academic. Um, And I feel that at the moment, certainly in the field of, of, of history, we have an absolutely thriving market that goes from very pinnacle of academic research to gloriously demotic history. Um, now, if, from what you're saying, it sounds as if that, that, that ecosystem may well be damaged, and I recognize the symptoms, because I had two years as the chair of the Society of Authors, <laughs> and the, the sense in which um, I mean, essentially, it boils down to the fact that, that, that most people who use the Internet take for granted that everything should be free. Mm-hmm. And that is, in whatever form, whether it affects academics, whether it affects um, journalists, and now, with the rise of e-books, it's starting to affect authors. This is a, a huge challenge, and it's why uh, I cheerfully subscribe to The Times Paywall. Uh, my <laughs> I, I absolutely support it. I want it to be a success. Uh, it's also why, rather than pay the £30,000 to access JSTOR or whatever, I cheerfully pay my £350 to the London Library, which mm. then enables me yes. to, uh, to to access it. And I, I you do access feel. access
2: it online from home? Yes, yes. absolutely. Oh, absolutely.
4: Uh-huh. There are always ways. I mean, if I want to read David's articles and were I not a subscriber to the Times, I could probably find it syndicated to an Australian newspaper. Mm-hmm. There are ways around this. And so. Um, though it may sound, as, as someone who's outside the university system, I'm all in favor of, of, of people outside the university system paying just a little bit to support the work that academics do.
2: Great. Thank you very much. David.
4: Um, I have to admit to
5: a an inexpertness in this area, uh, which is one of the reasons why I asked to be last, and also having spent the day writing about Jimmy Savile. Um, uh, inexpert to the extent whereby, I have to confess, that I have always thought that monographs were those things that rich people put on their underwear. Um, no, really, I mean, a serious matter of getting mixed up. I've, had that, uh, I've been saved by subs on at least two occasions from uh, from that particular one. But, um, uh, and so, it's distressing, really, to have the door open on a whole new world of complexity and pain um, <laughs> this evening. It's obviously, it, it obviously is very difficult, and the world is uh, immensely complicated. Um, we're looking at this question of accessibility in these two interconnected ways, although, of course, actually that's rather cheeky of us because there's no need for them to be connected, mm-hmm. but we just want to, which is accessibility in the sense of can lots of people understand what on earth you're talking about um, can anybody understand what you're talking about I mean we all know the circumstances of PhD students who are only really people really qualified to mark their own doctorates uh, and so on and so the question about accessibility in a context like that is really quite interesting um, you do it yourself because it's accessible to you um, and then the con the, the, the question about its accessibility in the terms of whether having understood it anybody can actually afford to see it or find out where where it is. Those are our two notions of accessibility. And of course, as has been pointed out, um, this is not just a matter for academics. And in fact, in a way, you you could make an argument for exempting academics from this argument entirely. I mean, after all, academics are already paid for doing something else. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I know it's a rude concept to introduce in a discussion in the evening amongst people who are academics, but there is also teaching um, out there. I say this as a parent at a particular stage of my children's development where uh, I could occasionally wish for very selfish reasons that academics spent more effort teaching than they did looking at their own research and going on sabbaticals. But on the other hand, I'm quite obviously aware of the benefits which they often feel that they get from those sabbaticals even if their students are not quite so aware. And we can, one of the things that we should discuss incidentally in this context is the way in which the fee arrangements in this country may very well change the ecology of what it is regarded, of how we regard the good, the bad, and the indifferent academic. Because it's certainly changing the ways in which students look at it. Um, Now, I've been around people uh, who have been experts writing, who have decided to write books, and who Uh, who are friends of mine, and who come to somebody like me for advice, imagining that I somehow hold the magic key to accessibility, because my stuff gets printed week in, week out, um, and they are beginning uh, 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 their own books. I mean, sometimes we're talking about somebody wants to write something that's more popular than they have been writing academically. And I do recognize this terrific tension between the desire to be approved of by your academic peers on the one hand, and therefore to make whatever you're writing as obscure as you possibly can, yeah. uh, and so on. So that you, for the same reason, I think it seems to me psychological reason, quite often that we have etiquette. Etiquette and table manners. Are at least as much a matter of seeing who hasn't got them as it is of finding out who has. Uh, And so it is with certain sorts of language. They're at least as much a matter of discovering who's mastered these other forms as it's not. Now, I'm not sure, Tom, why history escaped, why it sort of, why by and large it escaped into maintaining the same use of language generally that everybody else was using. It's an interesting question. But other subjects, uh, I'll, I'll give you one example which should be accessible. Anthropology. Mm. University anthropology mm. yeah. is universally taught in terms which are absurd. I know because my daughter came back from Cambridge with a, a series of anthropology uh, with anthropology books and I think by and large I should be able to understand anthropological concepts without a feeling that my bla- brain is bleeding. I might be introduced <laughs> to new ideas but i should actually be able to understand most of the language in which they're couched i just uh, i just couldn't so there's the tension between if you like the desire for um not to have put a foot wrong in the eyes of your peers not to get that peer review which says i for fear that uh, that so and so has actually rather underrated etc they kind of those terrible those terrible things with of course the first for popular recognition we used to have it a bit uh, I used to recognize my parents in the Communist Party. You wanted at the one stage to be a proper communist. On the other hand, you were desperate not to be isolated from everybody else all the time, etc. And these things were in a kind of constant tension. So I note that desire. And so people come to you and say, how can I couch this idea that I have in a way which is accessible, i.e. popular, but which also won't get all my colleagues saying that I'm a sellout and a useless person and so on. So uh, Now, it may be that you couch the tension in a different way. I observe it in the way that I I do. Um, But then talking about crossover I love the idea of crossover books uh, any book I write has already crossed over um, um, it's you know it never started on the other side anyway um, so that's a kind of and, and incidentally that's a that that's that's a concept I've only just really beginning to appreciate as a result of this discussion it never occurred to me folks your books were anything other than books <laughs> um, it didn't occur to me that they were somehow or other a major part of a job application or a sort of future prospectus and so on and I think this is something that we do miss outside the academic world is not understanding really uh, uh, how this works now for journalists the tension is of a slightly different kind and um, you could describe it in a way as being more basic but i'm not trying to suggest in that way that it's any that, that it's more urgent we have an immense thirst to be read we want to be read if nobody reads us we don't exist we you know we're tinkerbells in that sense clap and we are live, stop clapping, and we disappear. And this was one of the major problems for those of us who so-called disappeared behind the paywall, a phrase I loathe, because it's like disappearing behind the bookshop wall or something <laughs> like that. You know, the fact is that we only disappear behind the paywall in the same sense that news, you disappeared behind the newsagent's wall because you had to buy the newspaper in the old days and so on. But we'll come around in a little moment to kind of how that's kind of... Dis- uh, how, how how this num- why this language has changed, versus our desire on the other hand to be paid for what we do mm-hmm. and it is a simple fact really, which is that n- all just which is I, th- I think in no case of if you like uh, an accessible but authoritative journalistic enterprise operates under no circumstances other than s- either subsidy or loss mm-hmm. uh, that's That's more or less the situation. Uh, And yet we have created this situation whereby online people think that freedom of information also means that information is free. They actually do think these two. This is this is now a kind of synonymous. And the Guardian uh, is uh, the BBC was the first major villain in this piece, though it did it very well with its on with its online uh, website, which was utterly brilliant, which was really really brilliant, and which introduced people to the idea of online journalism, which was free. It wasn't, of course, free. You paid it when you bought a television when you got the television license, but that was such a long distance away from the thing that you were bringing up that you could actually pretend to yourself it was, it, it was free. Uh, and so on. And the other major villain in the piece is The Guardian, The Guardian which has been on a single-handed mission to destroy the newspaper industry, um, sometimes for good reason, sometimes for bad reason, uh, and to kill itself into the bargain, and which is now in the business of attempting, because it can't, to monetize um, uh, its uh, online uh, 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 offering by getting sufficient subscribers on the left in America to click on the site, the advertisers will make up the revenue, and it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, or at least not any in any time scale that will actually, I think, save them. So as a consequence, what we have is these of incredible pressures, and then we have something like the Times Paywall, which possibly, if it was associated with somebody other than Rupert Murdoch, Would have a better would have kind of better odour than it does, Mm -hmm. Uh, and so so there's a significant problem uh, for us for uh, a very big problem an unresolved problem for us there. And I think um, I would have liked to have seen an iTunes model. Mm -hmm. And it may be that in the end this is also going to have to work in a way for academics. I mean, it's actually something like what Tom's talking about about with the London Library. Anyway, you either lump it all together. Somebody buys the whole lot and throws it out. Or, you have a relatively cheap mechanism for making access to things in such a way that you don 't have to make this thirty five pound decision and find that you were wrong, but which is sufficiently often used in order to construct a, some kind of economy for it uh, outside and where somebody and where somebody does it for you now. It's quite possible that none of those things will happen, isn't it? And actually, it's most likely that none of those things will happen. And that what we will do is we will kind of, you know, droge around in the middle and newspapers will fail and some will just about manage to hang on and survive and some authors will do okay and other authors won't do uh, okay and so on. Bookshops will go out of fashion gradually and we'll all replace them in, 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 in other kinds of different ways and so on. Um, uh, but what I'm rather hoping is that actually as a country, and maybe this is the part of this discussion, we can come up with a couple of plans cunning plans which may help us through
2: thank you yes I've, I've always thought that micropayments are the answer mm-hmm. because I wouldn't mind reading a newspaper online and every page every article I click on is another 5p or 10p and at the end of the month I get on my credit card statement you know eight pounds 64 to News international mm-hmm. fair enough but well, it's jumping to... a big paywall every time you want to read one piece yeah. that is such a deterrent well, I do have a
6: subscription
4: by the way what, what, what have you had to pay to comment that seems to me the way Oh, I'd love the trolls to have to pay. <laughs> I, I think that would work in every way. Can, yes, can, I, just, can I just pick up on one thing that,
1: sure. that David said? The, uh, the question about whether academics are already paid, um, and so really ought to you know, stop worrying about whether they're getting paid again for, for writing books. But of course, the, the, I think there are two issues here, uh, or two possible consequences here, It's the either or that you've just set up. What, what, even academia, you'll be amazed here, follows financial incentives. Um, And so what will happen if if the books become open access and the universities aren't getting any money from them and they're actually just trying to get exactly people to pay in order to publish, well the incentive to publish then disappears. Um, so, what, And, in fact, in the humanities that's already the case because almost all of this whole rep, one of the reasons I sort of didn't want to get into the ref thing is because it's disappearing before our eyes because it's only 10% of funding for the humanities now anyway. Mm. So, 90% of, of the humanities are now funded by, by student fees, that's what the uh, coalition has decreed. So, that means that we're all going to be teaching more anyway, that's already happening. Um, teaching is going to be what drives the system because that's where the money is coming from. But so what will happen then to the question of academic research, which with Tom, I still think is at the heart of intellectual culture. um, And I have to believe in the importance of those ideas and expertise in the research. Well, you either do it in your spare time or you have a brain drain. One of two things will happen. People will either leave academia and say, well, I wanna go write books and I'm just gonna take a punt and hope I can make a a living doing it because that's why I'm here. Or the teachers won't have time to write. And the universities will say, well, that's all right because that's not where the money's coming from anyway.
5: Am I missing something? I mean, I'm sure that's right, but, but what, then, are these sabbaticals that people keep on
1: taking? Well, people, well, first of all, they, well, pr- again, those will dry up because they're They'll not going up. to be funded. Right. So right. They're, they're funded in order to get the books, in order to get the money that the ref brings into the university, which is no longer coming into the university. And I oh, fear oh, what oh, will happen, Was, actually, that, was that clear? <laughs>
3: well, just to add on to your point, I think I fear what will happen is that the, the research at university level of academics bringing research into the classroom yeah. Because it's not just teaching research. Absolutely. Research creates new teaching. Absolutely. And if you allow the research to dry up, the teaching is not worth anything. Yeah. But that um, research-led teaching and the research that goes with it, I'm afraid with the way government policies are going, will end up being done only in the elite universities. Exactly. Uh, at the moment, they're, they're saying, because of the REF and the way it's structured, you have to get into the top 25 universities in this country, otherwise you get no central funding for research.
4: Sure. And, and And presumably, then, this will mimic what is happening in the um, in the world of bookshops, where, for instance, the implosion of the closure of Otica's scythed away a, a vast number of bookshops that provided... Um, well books of the kind that i write so uh, <laughs> that's why i'm aware of it but but there is a ridiculous. sense there is a sense in which um, in which the infrastructure that always supported um, say serious non fiction is is collapsing exactly. and it's fine for those who've already made it it's it's fine exactly. for those who are up yeah. on a level but the ladder is being pulled up exactly. and it's those who are in the foothills now who, yeah. who mm-hmm. face the problem and i imagine therefore it's, it's the same you know that the, the heavyweight Academics, the ones who appear on Late Review and get in I don't know what you mean. London Review <laughs> books and things, um, will we'll, we'll be fine. Mm, but, well, but those who are just starting out, it will become it'll tricky be again. Absolutely. Yeah, That's yes. where the brain
3: drain will come.
2: Absolutely. Let's yes. open this up to the audience, all these um, we, we have a highly roving, intelligent people we have a roving sitting here. Mic, um, right, who'd
6: <laughs> like to start us off? Um, my name is Henrietta Royal. Can I just play a little bit of devil's advocate a little bit on this for a moment? The whole issue of research, we have more and more and more and more and more coming out because there are more and more academics and as has as been said, people's careers are dependent on what they do in terms of research. Um, the fact is that only certain journals count anyway and getting into them is increasingly hard. In practice, a very large amount of research, if we're honest, is merely grinding existing research ever smaller (laughs) and quite frankly will we really miss it Um, we clearly need to have continue to have a body of elite research done interesting research that may be done in the elite universities it may be done in other places Um, and and it's important that that's funded but the idea that all academics should be doing research and are capable of doing all of them really worthwhile research, is in my view nonsense. And indeed, with the way things have gone, the the business model doesn't work for everybody to do it. What surely there needs to be development of is that there will be a bunch of academics who really can do the really good stuff and should continue to do so. They should continue to do some, some teaching. I think it's important they stay in touch with that. But then you have a larger body of what you might call scholars, who are the people who do the teaching, who are up to date with all, all the research that's being done, who inform their teaching with that. It's perfectly possible for that. to do. It doesn't have to be the person who's actually done the research. Mm. And that that is a model that would actually work and might be better value for money. Mm. Now, for some bizarre reason, research acti- active academics hate having non-research active academics who could teach anywhere near them, and bully them and drive them out, in my experience, if they can possibly do so. But perhaps everybody needs to get a grip and understand that maybe this is a direction we need to go. We get less research, but we just get the really good quality, and we get a lot of people concentrating on um, distributing that, whether external to the university or to the, to the students okay. through scholarship.
2: Okay, isn't that more or less what happens in the states? You have sort of teaching colleges and research. Yeah, units. yeah,
1: and and they're seen as they're seen as a two-tier system or a fifty-two tier system because America's you know it's very complicated. Um, and, but a lot of universities, as Henrietta knows, are already doing are already doing something along those lines, and it is precisely called scholarship, and that's um, what they're doing. And I agree with you in principle up to a point, which is that I do think that cr- trying to, to force all academics through the sausage grinder, one size fits all model that you must do, the the standard, as you know, the standard balance is you're supposed to do a third admin, a third teaching and a third research. Well, that doesn't suit everybody. And so to actually say, yeah, for the people who want to do all teaching, great, good, go teach the students, fabulous. But the problem is, is I think with the slightly if I may say so, a slightly easy way in which you said, well, there needs to be elite research and that will be okay. I, I'm, not, I'm just less convinced that that's going to take care of itself quite so easily. And I, and I echo Orlando's point about how, uh, particularly how uh, young academics who do have great things to say, who are really interesting, who have things that they want to share, are, whether we're creating systems in which that becomes impossible for them. Erlan, do you want to add to that? Do
3: you just do yeah, that? no, um, I share Sarah's point, but I, you're probably right, actually, that there is just too... I don't think there's too much research done, there's just too much published. Yeah, output. There's a lot of mediocre yeah. res- publications... Uh, as, as David and, and Tom have seen, in, uh, you know, and we've all probably scratched our heads trying to understand what the hell does this <laughs> sentence mean, let alone what am I trying to get out of this article? Written in abstruse language which seems to be only for other academics or to make themselves as incomprehensible as possible and therefore appear clever. <laughs> um, and open access, you would hope, would sort of encourage a little bit more accessible writing. Um, but it's the—I don't think it's the research. I think um, to get quality research, you need to have research-active academics. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, you'll, it's just the the chance of numbers, isn't it, of somebody coming up with something really clever, and and, and original, interesting. I think it's a problem of publication, mm-hmm. but that comes down, I'm afraid, to you know maybe a large part of it in recent years has just been just the verbosity of academics, and here I am going on and on (laughs) and on. But also the REF, which has encouraged people to to write more than they probably should.
2: Okay, thank you. Uh, Peter York at the back.
7: I think the problem isn't at your level, meaning the panel's level, and not necessarily in your disciplines, but at a lower, younger, and newer discipline level. There's a real infection of the language. I'm sorry to endorse this language bashing, but it's terribly important. If you're a hack seeking to draw down from what elite young researchers have written, you may pay your $35, and you get your monograph, you get your something, and you don't actually know whether it's delivered. It's as simple as that. You don't know whether it's delivered what you want. And complexity on complexity. Part of it is, if you're one of those um, young researchers, you're seeking to legitimize what you're doing. You're seeking to legitimize um, the the discipline itself. You're seeking to legitimize your focus. And you're seeking to show everything you've ever read inside the text. So you don't even go to footnotes, and that is, Truly terrible, and you're using um, a very special set of, um, particularly social science coinages, mm. where other words really, really will do. Mm. It, in the sciences, they won't, but in social science, they really will. And it's, you wonder that there isn't somebody. Um, um, in charge (laughs) Where are the editors that that really isn't somebody in charge of language because it's a very very powerful barrier to things I don't know whether the research is any good or not you know Henrietta's point about grinding small things which (laughs) might be culled I don't know whether they ought to be culled and I don't know whether they've delivered the interesting thing is that both tribes despise each other I mean, you and I
2: despise the academics who can't even write understandable English. They despise us for being populist and lowbrow because we don't use semiotics in every other sentence.
4: I, I, I'm not sure that's true. I, I think that, um, I mean, f- presumably in anthropology, but certainly in literary criticism, mm. the reason that um, so much um, academic discourse in the late seventies, the eighties, the early nineties was so impenetrable. It, it, it was the excitement of the drug addict with a new hit. Absolutely. It was it was it was the sniff of you know a line of Derrida, a syringe full of Foucault. Whoa. And and the sense I have now is that is that people academics have sort of adjusted to the hit. You know they've they've, they've sort of adjusted to their habit, um, and the insights that that. Post-structuralism, for instance, provided has now filtered through not just into the language of literary criticism, but certainly, say, into the study of history. There is an, a much greater awareness of the nature of historical sources as text, and you, you know where that's coming from. You know that that's coming from Derrida. You know that that's coming from from from, from that very very sort of difficult Yale <laughs> style language, and yet there it is. It's been it's been um, It's been mediated and it's becoming more accessible, and it, it it you know it feeds through into I guess into the media as well, and it feeds into into into, but, into popular history, and that is the sign you know I, that that seems to me something that is healthy. Mm.
1: But I think it's only becoming accessible when people like us work really hard at making it so. And I actually have to echo Peter's point, and I'm going to sound like an apostate or possibly even a heretic, but the I actually I, I think I think it's right. I think there are a lot of people who it is a sophisticated version of undergraduates using big words in order to disguise the banality of their thoughts. Um, that's what it is. Often, it's not always that, but there are times when that language does what Tom is saying. When it's actually exciting. When, when, when proper Derridian deconstruction happens, which almost nobody knows what that means anymore. But when it actually happens, it's really exciting and interesting. But what you need is somebody who understands it well enough that they can make that accessible. And, and that's exactly the inspiration behind this. I mean, this is what that's what the website is trying to do. That's what this conversation is. is what I wanted it to be about is to say these ideas, and, it, and I think Marianne is also. Right right there are there are absolutely people in academia who sneer at the idea of it's true it simply is true now it's changing it's changing slowly and I think people are realizing I think it's a generational thing and I think it is shifting but I think that we need to we need to keep fighting to make it clear that there is uh, there is a way to make interesting, complex, sophisticated ideas accessible to people who don't have PhDs in the subject. And that these barriers to entry are there in order to show that you have entered the profession, that you are an expert, that you are, uh, and and that they had, you know, it has its use in one sense, but it's as much about professionalization as it is about actually sharing sophisticated ideas in a sophisticated mm. way. You can but
2: have exciting ideas. You don't have to have horrible language
4: yeah. to explain them. I- except that the language, you know, Back in the seventies and eighties was was the expression of a sort of intellectual rush. Mm. It was it was the excitement of it. It was an intellectual revolution. Well, speak for yourself. I didn't <laughs> find it exciting. <laughs> yeah, but I, th- I, I you know I think the measure of the excitement of it is is the way in which it has now been um, it, it's become sort of common parlance among mm. all kinds of fields that probably don't necessarily even recognise the, the influence of, mm. of post-structuralism. But it's you know that. I sort of think about something I've been doing recently: the the study of. Um, of of scriptural texts in late antiquity. The, 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 The perspective that scholars now bring to patristics and Talmudic studies and Quranic studies is very, very powerfully informed by what literary critics were doing in the 70s and 80s. Um, and, and that makes it, I think, you know, that that makes it into something but that you can even translate into a Channel Four film.
1: I absolutely agreed. But the problem is, is that is that what happens is that then people use the language as if it is a substitute for those sorts of ideas. So if I, but to use the words doesn't mean that I'm actually having brilliant thoughts. Yeah, I, those yeah, ideas yeah, are agree. brilliant. I agree. I
4: agree. I think that those who are doing it now are, you know, I mean, it's, well, you might as well be wearing flares. Yeah. But, but, but
1: <laughs> presume <laughs> no, no, we've got, we've got yeah. sorry, we've <laughs> got loads of questions. Yes, the man
2: here in the front.
8: Uh, John Charmley One of the problems not yet mentioned is that what this is going to do, the government proposals, is to replace a relatively rigged market with the tyranny of the research councils. Because actually it is not going to be the general public, it is not going to be the students, it's not even going to be other academics. It's actually going to be a small group of people on the Arts and Humanities Research Council who award a relatively small amount of money in grants. They are going to be the ones who decide. Now, having looked at this over the last nearly decade, they probably have funded one or two decent history books. (laughs) But actually, if you look at it, nearly all the stuff that's appeared has not been funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. In fact, if I really wanted to be unpleasant, I could could cite a whole pile of wasted money. Mm. Uh, One project I'm very well aware of, £300,000 was wasted. So, the real danger here is not only is it elite universities, so-called, who are allowed to publish, and that becomes vanity publishing because I'm the editor of of an international journal, and at the moment we we do do proper peer reviewing. Now, the moment it becomes someone's going to pay me to publish this stuff, I'm not going to publish stuff that no one's paying me for, because someone needs to pay me and needs to pay the journal. So it's going to be the Arts and Humanities Research Council, which in fact means a version of the Old Boys and Girls Network, Mm. and what is going to be funded is what is trendy. And I think that will lead back to a a situation in which you have a smaller and smaller group of people talking to each other. And God knows why the taxpayer should bother to fund that. And why, actually, it's not so much the taxpayer anymore, it's people like David and myself and those of us with children at universities. Um, Why should 9,000 fees actually go to pay for the Arts and Humanities Research Council? Uh, to fund what it likes, because actually Mm, it only funds 10%. So I think the tyranny of the research councils is something to
2: watch out for. That's a very good point. Mm. Uh, Now, there's, yes, a question here, please.
9: (laughs) Thank you. My name is Richard Harvey. I'm a computer scientist, so sorry to impose myself on your humanities uh, world. Um, David described brilliantly, I thought, the sort of paralysis academics feel when they have to explain their, their work to the general public. Um, But there is a theme that you haven't mentioned that's running through REF and the sort of academic policy at the moment called impact. And the idea of impact is that I will not be um, patted on the back for some dreary uh, book, part of my promotional, my grand campaign to be a professor, but I'll be patted on the back for doing something that society cares about or changing society. Now, us computer scientists, of course, find this remarkably easy to have impact because we make artifacts. Would you like to talk a bit about impact in humanities? Because it's kind of an interesting topic, especially for the non-academics, uh, perhaps.
2: Okay, could you pass your mic along to woman too long, and then we'll take both all three. Um,
10: Eliza Philby, Dr Eliza Philby from King's College London. Um, and I also I run a business called Speakeasy, helping academics um, kind of actually learn the art of public speaking. Yeah. Um, and drawing on that experience, I'd just like to make a special plea for teaching Because actually, getting up in front of 50 um, hungover 21-year-olds, 9 o'clock on a Monday morning and keeping them awake for an hour is an absolute skill that all academics need to be able to do. And that is, in that very nature of doing, you know, being a good teacher makes you a better academic, makes you a better researcher and certainly means that you'll be able to communicate your research to a broader audience. So, I mean, it, you know, pleasing our customers, which we now call them at university, our customers, and even, yes, the parents who are paying the fees of our customers, pleasing those customers first, I think is an absolute priority. And certainly, I think that the art of teaching is something we receive very little training in as academics. Um, it's something that is almost seen as. We have to put at the bottom of our CV when applying for jobs. I think there needs to be a real revival and a respect for academics as teachers. Yeah.
6: Mm. Okay.
2: Thank you. Speaking as... Uh, <laughs> speaking as someone whose daughter's director of studies um, went off on sabbatical for a year and a half after her first three weeks. Um, <laughs> completely sympathise with David. Your turn. David, would you like to reply to any of that? Well, I
5: mean, I, I obviously agree with with what you were saying um, uh, there. Uh, This question about impact, I mean, it's true, isn't it, that after you've been in journalism for long enough, there is no single idea or problem that hasn't presented itself for round about the fifth (laughs) iteration. (laughs) And I seem to remember this one, the question of what value added, it's sometimes called, sometimes impact, something else, subsidised research or work in the universities gives beyond what, if you like, the academic themselves or the institution they belong to will claim for it, which of course will be everything, because of course it's going to be everything, of course they're going to claim everything for it, this is absolutely central stuff and so on. And one of the things that, um, uh, that this kind of raises, this rather raises, uh, as, as other people have is, and you just kind of go back to basics: is, who is this research for? This research we're talking about, firstly, who is it for? Second, once you've done it, why do you have to publish it? I mean, if it's true that it's your research informs your incredible teaching, there's not a necessary connection between that and publishing, unless you think there's gonna be a connection between the publishing, let's say, and the 9,000 pounds a year student at the other end who says to themselves eventually, and how are they gonna make these choices, by the way? There are two criteria by which I might judge, or several criteria, but let's talk about uh, those that haven't got to do with the sort of town we like to live in and how close it is to home. Which is, do the teachers seem to be any good, and is the course any good? I mean, how are you going to judge this? So you might argue, I'm going to go where Professor Sarah Churchwell is. Why would you do that? Because her, her books, I see her books, she's quite famous, they're good Seem books, I understand be. them and so on. <laughs> uh, is, that, is that one of the ways in which in let's say the humanities, people are going to make that judgment? Is that why we publish? Why wouldn't everything therefore be a crossover or an attempt at a crossover, if the major ob- objective of it is to try and draw people towards you and towards your institution because of this new thing that you are doing? I suppose this begs the question of this sort of other research that exists in the void somehow or other, which only exists for itself and for the person who does it, and conceivably for somebody who could make head or tail of it in the future and may have have some strange impact you know, but, you know, years and years on, which is the kind that people have always uh, laid claim to. So who's the research for? Why does it, really, who's it for? And why does it have to be published? And if it does have to be published, then comes the question about how you publish it. A crossover book, you don't need to worry about so much, because the idea of a crossover book is it's selling. In other words, you'll get an advance from a publisher for it. What I thought was really interesting, looking at some of the blurb, uh, uh, um, some of the stuff that was sent out before this, was the world of academic house publishing, where you had to do things like buy back your own copyright from journals in order to be able to quote yourself. Uh-huh. Um, is that broadly how it? And I thought, that was just remarkable. Uh-huh. That <laughs> We <Wait, was you laughs>
2: don't have copyright in our either, do we? No. Uh,
5: right. Is that true? Yeah, I yeah, never really thought about, about that restriction. Can I not quote myself somewhere else? So
4: it's yeah. right-
2: you could probably quote it, but you couldn't. I not You couldn't just publish the whole article. No, no, no,
4: no. It's okay. Like Lennon, and McCartney, and Michael Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Right. Uh, um, um, all under I I, yeah,
3: you yeah, yeah. No. I think uh, uh, for in the academic world, good teaching should be the beginning of good communication. And I've always been in favour of the idea of making PhD students do a certain amount of teaching, because if they can't communicate, um, their subjects. They subject, seem to do it all, now, all, yeah. all now. Well, yeah. there, some of them do it, but they. There should be, a, um, you know, an inbuilt part of the academic life that revolves around communication and being able to relate their specialist subject to to the more general context in which it comes. But I think that the academic world has got itself into a real mess, actually, over the division between uh, research, teaching and publishing. And there is this structure that, you know, you then go on to publish your monograph that, that, that determines your career and all the rest of it. And coming back to John's, I think important point about about you know I, I also fear that this research council might become a sort of hegemonic um, force. Actually, a lot of what Tom was talking about in his in his presentation about the the great richness of historical writing in this country hasn't come from that structure of the academics going on to do the monograph and the. For my views of virtually defunct academic presses, which could well just be put onto the internet, as far as I'm concerned. It would save a lot of space in the library. The richness, the richness of it has come from you know, presses, commercial presses, approaching academics with good ideas for books. Mm-hmm. And, and from that fruition of, you know, the academic world with commercial publishing most of what I think Tom would be referring to as the great wealth of historical writing in this country has come from. And yet, we've got ourselves academically into this mess. I mean, so we're looking for sort of, because of the sort of Thatcher revolution, the marketization of everything that was supposed to take place in the university sector, we then got into this absurd situation that um sorry, I've forgotten your name. Richard. Richard uh, raised about impact. You know, it was all very well for everyone to sort of go away to their ivory towers and do their stuff and do their teaching and publish their monographs. But then suddenly, oh, we're all supposed to have impact. And, I, you know, someone who um, had sort of st- dared to step out of the academy and got myself sort of shot down by snipers from within at um, every possible moment i sort of found it rather funny ironically funny that suddenly having sort of been cursed by all my colleagues for having impact Mm -hmm. the government then turned around and said what's your impact and so my former colleagues, you know, who are very snobby about writing for a general audience, are now sort of saying, oh, well, isn't that good? <laughs> but that's, we got ourselves into that well, then mess. That's a good
6: thing,
2: isn't it? We it's should, well, good. We should, should be, be having that. But it's there.
3: about communication, communication in the classroom, and, and, and communication that should, you know, the market should be there, commercial publishers should be there to create good ideas. And that doesn't necessarily come from academic structures. Mm.
1: OK. Well, well, very quickly,
3: because yeah, so I just, just know there are loads of questions. Yeah, no. So, just
1: very, very quickly, then I would say also the thing about um, the, this notion of impact. Two things. One, as you know, impact has, t- in order for it to count as impact, because of the way the rules are set up, it has to be refable, right? So, so if I, when I go, on, if I go on TV and it's not connected to the research-funded stuff, then it doesn't count. First of all, so there are all of these very kind of rule, weird rules about it. But secondly, I would go to Eliza's point about um, about teaching and and extended and. and and, and Orlando's point about communication, and extend both of those, and say that as far as I'm concerned, everything that I do—writing co- so-called crossover books, writing journalism, appearing on radio or television—it all is a, a very, very technical thing that I like to think of as teaching. It's what I do. I communicate the ideas that I study. That's what I do. Right. Language-
6: oh. <laughs> no, all right. Go no. <laughs> no, nothing let, to do. <laughs>
1: Three more. Okay. Two in the back
2: row there, and one in the front row here.
11: I'm Christy Slade from Bath Spa University, which is one of the smaller and not uh, universities, not renowned for its research, although it does do some very good stuff. I I think that that there's a whole lot of stuff here which has been very interesting, but we do have a bit of an ambiguity in the notion of open, what we mean by openness here, like the difference between free, free information and information being free. In the old university system, what happened was basically publishing houses exploited universities who paid academics. academics to work and they then took their work and not only did you not get paid for your academic journals, you edited the journals for somebody else, you peer reviewed for somebody else. Months and months and months of unpaid work which was funding the great publishers. And the drive for open access is not just the the AHRC wanting even more power, it's people saying, my God, we've already paid that once. How dare those publishers take another cut again? And that's one sense of open, and I think it's an important one that's part of this story that hasn't come out. The other sense of open, where, where we mean transparent, comprehensible, and understandable, I think is a really important one, and I think we should all be driving to make our stuff as open, as comprehensible as possible. But I really do want to reinforce Tom's point. Academic work and the development of knowledge is not a straightforward, easy process. And it doesn't always drip out in lucid prose from the pens and heads of the people who are thinking, well, it's taken us nearly a century for the sort of sociology of the early 20th century to become the gospel of Lady Magazine, <laughs> which it has, or Wittgensteinian notions, to have started to be so <coughs> widely used that you can find them even in anthropology. So I mean, what I'm trying to say is that we have to give space for academics and academic talk to be less than you know, exquisitely beautiful. And okay. I think that we need to, anyway, that's it. Thank
2: you. No. <laughs> yes.
12: I'm Stephen Jolly. I'm from Cambridge University.
11: Very grand.
12: (laughs) Um, I'm also a fellow at the Judge Business School at Cambridge. Um, I'd like to offer a commercial perspective on this. I'd I'd really like to address it to David, in fact, um, given your debunking of conspiracy. Um, I'm sitting here and watching this with slightly wry uh, bemusement because it seems to me there is a conspiracy here, actually. Um, And the conspiracy is that I'm looking at a group of people who are victims of a trend. And so I have to ask myself, who is the beneficiary of the trend? Uh, I had a very interesting discussion the other day with somebody who represents one of the major publishing houses who had been seeking a meeting in number 10 uh, to discuss open access and was declined a meeting in number 10. When they then FOI'd number 10, they discovered that Google had 24 meetings in the last three months. (laughs) So I do wonder whether we ought to be thinking a little bit more about whether this is genuinely about democratization or whether this is about advertising revenues for search engines.
2: Okay.
13: Thanks, Zhang Yin, and also along the line of commercialization or funding side of the things, because coming from the finance industry rather than academics or media industry, I couldn't help uh, but thinking about that all through this time. And I just wanted to offer some humble thoughts and seek your expertise on this. So one thing that I was thinking of is, you know, I think the micropayment idea is, is a wonderful one. I don't know why newspapers are, are not doing it, but to charge people by reading it is almost equivalent to saying if you have money, you can, you can have access to the information, but if you're poor, if you can't afford it, you, you can't. And that, that's contrary to my fundamental belief that people should have access. So, one solution to this might be you can monetize the timeliness of the information. And that's actually not only uh, for the media industry, it's true for, for example, pharmaceutical industry. You can have a patent or you know on a certain uh, drug, but after a few years, then it's free for everyone. So maybe one of the ideas is we can, ha- we can charge for a certain period of time if you want to have a timeliness uh, access to the information, and then uh, that's actually true in copyrights for books. You, know, you can have copyrights, but after the copyright expires, then the books is actually free uh, for access. And that actually is what you know, I read a book from a Stanford law professor um, Lawrence Lessig, uh, he wrote a book uh, called The Future of Ideas. He actually thinks this kind of timeliness should be shortened, you know, the, the copyright time frame should be shortened so people can have more and more uh, timeliness information. But there should, maybe there should be a, a period when you can charge. Um, another idea is, you know, from a totally different perspective that is practiced by, for example, music industry. Um, a lot of the music content right now is free for everybody, but if you want to go to a gig or a concert, which is a live performance, then you need to pay a lot of money. I actually spend a lot, lot more money on live concerts than actually online music now, because iTunes made music so cheap. And that idea is actually um, kind of utilized by TED. You know, mm-hmm. TED.com, which I'm a huge fan of. They actually use this idea in a way because these people, you know, come to this forum and they talk about, you know, their new ideas. But if you want to get an in-person interaction with these people, you need to pay a lot of money. You know, the, the, the I think the membership to attend attend TED conference is like seven thousand dollars or something. Ah, so, a amount
5: of interest. I mean, how is that any more moral? Why is it any more? Why is it any better? To exclude poor people from concerts than it is in a smaller way to exclude them from music.
0: It's it's not
13: it's it's not from a moral standard, and I'm not arguing it's moral. I'm just saying maybe it's a solution to to solve the dilemma, because there is a true dilemma here. You want to have, you know, you you want to offer free access to information, but the people who uh, create these things also want to be rewarded. So. And I'm saying, you know, how is, how is it moral that the pharmaceutical com- companies that come up with the innovative drug charge such a high price for patients? It should be, you know, very cheap and manufactured by every drug pharmaceutical companies, right? So, so it, in my case,
5: true. it would mean that the times would be free, but you'd all be charged 100 quid for coming in to listen to this
2: talk. <laughs> maybe but all were, the money would go to were, Julia, it would we'll yeah. go to us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I bring this trick.
4: I I, I spent five years on the Society of Authors, three as a committee member and two as the chair. And what we felt like was senators in Constantinople hearing news of what was happening in the Western empire of music. The vandals were coming. And each time we met, news of yet another Western defeat would come in. And we had the music industry in front of us as this terrible example of what might happen Simultaneously, we could feel that um, you know, our fortifications were being corroded, that our armies were melting away, yeah. that everything that had sustained our empire since the age of Gutenberg was on the, the verge of melting away. And absolutely, you are so right that, of course, all of us um, are, <laughs> are living through an absolute transformation in communication technology, which inevitably is going to have an impact on industry, on academia, on every dimension of our society comparable to that in in the late 15th and early 16th century. And who knows how it's going to shake down. Now, it's also true that there is no question who the winners are. They are Google. They are Amazon. They are these American behemoths. Um, And we are just a very, very small tail that is being wagged by these colossal American multinational dogs. And in so many ways, it is fortunate for us, living in Britain, that we speak the international language. As an English writer, you have two cracks at, 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 at the market. You have British Commonwealth, then you have American. But the fact that, that, that basically, we are, by virtue of speaking English, we are just doomed to follow in the wake of the travails that are now hitting the American publishing industry, um, is something that all of us have to face up to. And I, you know, having begun on a cheery note, uh, I, I now end on a sort of <laughs> We've slightly you down. ...slightly Gibbonian <laughs> note, um, and, and yet I suppose, you know. Uh, it is terribly exciting to live through a revolution of the order that we're all going through. So um, you know, let's all look forward to, to the Shakespeare's and the Machiavellis who will be thrown out. <laughs> we'll to afford it, excuse yeah. me, while we all split
2: our wrists. Um. But I mean,
4: the, the problem with the, with the music model is is that of course it doesn't work because people will pay six pounds to go to a literary festival, but they're not you know unless it's J K Rowling, they're not going to pay anything more than that.
2: Yeah. That's true, I'm afraid to say. And you don't get us, you, you're not going to fill the O2 either, sadly. <laughs> yeah. um, Julia, I know you want to come back. Julia Hobsbawm.
0: Well, of all the events that we host, this is a particularly good and lively one. And to some degree, it's, it's uh, questioning something of a shibboleth about academia can't really be questioned. And much as I think academia should be revered for its good bits, I think it's incredibly welcome to hear people like Orlando and Sarah, challenge its orthodoxies, which is it is on the whole closed. It is on the whole very reliant on its key brands. Cambridge doesn't have to prove itself. Bristol doesn't have to prove itself. Warwick doesn't have to prove itself. Maybe Bath Spa has to work a little harder. That bears no relation at all to the talent that may or may not be residing in these academic institutions. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I worry slightly about this two-dimensional approach to payment or non-payment, to accessibility. Because in our experience, it is actually much more fluid. And if you look at the way the publishing industry is going, it's also fluid. Some academics can fill the O2, and, and, and plenty can't. If you study at Coursera, it's free. But the Princeton academics that might give a course on Coursera, if you want to be in a room with them, You've got to be selected, you've got to be chosen, and you have to pay. So, I've just written a piece for Wired Magazine where I've called this trend open source elitism. We do want to be in a room face to face with intimacy and access. We may or may not pay for that. That's not really the point. The point is, we have a desire for selection, and we have a desire for open accessibility. And I'm just not sure that we can be absolute about saying it exists right the way through one format or another. That's partly the challenge.
2: But do you think that people like David and me could support our families and send our children through university purely on live appearance fees? Because I have my doubts. (laughs) (laughs) No. Yeah, but I don't get paid for that either.
0: No, but as as you've proved, uh, and certainly uh, Orlando and David, you know, if you, if you do big books and big broadcast, I mean, you all are, in fact, on this panel, proving that model that you might do some things for free that you'd like to charge for. In fact, I think, if I'm right, we have not paid any of you no. tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, because it might lead on to other things. So I think the problem is there is a crisis in the market for knowledge. There's too much knowledge, and weeding it out and valuing it is a problem. And that's why this moment of tuition fees... Is, provi- is proving such, providing such a wake up call in this country. It's, it, it, it needed, in my view, to happen. It's very, very
2: painful. Okay, thank you very much. Uh,
9: my name is Bendel Grosvenor. Um, I just want to make a very brief point about we are having this discussion about the sort of two uh, root approach to having teachers and researchers. And when I was an undergraduate and a postgraduate, the, those teachers who didn't do research were invariably the dullest. Mm-hmm. And it's very important, I think, we keep this link because it's the, it's the historians. I was I did history, and I'm going to embarrass my neighbour now by uh, my former tutor, John Charnley, who was a in, very inspiring man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's always those who are at the cold face who are the most inspirational, the most exciting teachers. And if we have just teachers who are the ones down the conveyor belt, they they're going to just become automatons. And I think we should resist that.
8: Hi, my name is Eric Halman, I'm founder of the Unglue It website. I, I just want to ask for what your cunning plans are. Because <laughs> um, the, the, the traditional mechanism of publishing scholarly monographs is in the process of dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, fewer, uh, fewer monographs are being published. The monographs that are being published sell less. Uh, a successful monograph might sell three hundred copies worldwide and uh, even if they get sold to a library or something, half of the time it never gets circulated. What what's what's the solution to, to, to this problem?
1: so um, yeah, I'd like to address that because the, the I think it's it's if I may say so, I think that's based on, the phallus, on the, a fallacious idea that that people ever were successful via monographs, um, scholarly monographs. As uh, Christy Slate said earlier, I mean the whole system, the whole system of academic publishing was based on exploiting universities and academics who were never mm-hmm. paid for it. So, I mean, I've I've contributed chapters to monographs where I have not even gotten a copy of the book. I haven't even been sent a comp of the book <laughs> that I wrote, right? Or at least that I wrote part of. Um, let alone getting any money. And I've had conversations with people who want to publish with scholarly presses, and I cannot convince them that they will not make any money if they do this. And they keep going, well, but I'll make money. You, you, they're at zero. Not, not just a little money. Zero. You will get nothing. Right? So so what was the tradition? The traditional compensation was indirect. The idea was you'd write your monographs and then the university would promote you and you would get a better salary from the university. So you would just wait and it was deferred compensation. Mm. But that's what's breaking down. So that the the younger, particularly younger academics, there is no route to that promotion. And the, the presses are breaking down and they're making more money and people are making less money. As you say, they're not even publishing them. What's the answer? The answer is, I mean, this is precisely why we wanted to have this conversation, because we are in this moment of crisis, and it goes up back also to the point about Google as well. It's a, it's a time of transition, but it's also a time, I mean, everything is sort of, all of the traditional modes that Orlando was talking about a minute ago are all falling apart around us. So that is both frightening and it's an opportunity, and that's precisely why I want to have this conversation, is to say, okay, what, what do we do? And you know, my tiny little contribution is to say, okay, well let's see what happens if we try to create a different kind of a conversation and see what people can start to do because absolutely the, the that kind of scholarly monograph is not is not could going to I just, take
4: people could, forward. I, well, one thing that I think is changing is Twitter. Yeah. Um, and what Twitter enables academics to do is to reach people who otherwise wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to wouldn't even know that the monograph existed. And one of the things that I find most useful and exciting about Twitter is that almost every day there will be links published to articles that I find completely fascinating and I would never have known existed Mm -hmm. otherwise. And I wonder if that isn't potentially Mm -hmm. that maybe the saving of it I don't know Mm.
2: Um. so uh, someone I know tweeted today the definition of Twitter is it's the shortest distance between you and what you're interested in (laughs) and I completely agree with you Tom I find the same in in journalism and in politics I get I get I I come across links to stuff I would never otherwise have
1: Mm. seen Mm.
5: Um, There's something something I'm puzzling over and um, maybe I'm missing uh, missing a point here we, we also exist at a time when actually publishing something is the cheapest it has ever been. Mm. It's never been less costly to actually put something out there, mm. right? Now, if you're not getting paid for putting stuff out there, and it's incredibly cheap for you to put stuff out there and you want to, why don't you just do it? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is is the thing. Now, if the the reason why you don't just do it is because you feel you need the imprimatur of somebody else to say the thing that you've done is good, then that seems to suggest that there should be a series of kind of collective areas Mm -hmm. which could be fairly cheaply administered by people who want to do them and believe in excellence, Mm -hmm. which could be, if you like, not certificated, something less than certificated, yeah. where you can put this material, and then things like Twitter can put them out. In fact, a charitable organisation could be set up for that very, or a series of charitable, for those very purposes. I don't think you need
4: it. I think that, that um, if certain websites get a reputation for publishing quality material, exactly uh, yeah. blogs you, that, that, that publish... Like thought out? But those blogs will... You know, they establish their own reputation. It's
5: only, it's only if you want to make money out of it that you've got a problem. Now, if this... Now, of course, you may, and that's where you get sort of things like books, et cetera, but uh, do people seriously expect to make money out of monographs? No. no.
3: And, uh, but that is, I think, what will happen, partly as a result of open access, that actually the established journals... Some, some of the established journals might go, but I don't see why historians or anthropologists, whoever, might not form collectives, cooperatives, whatever yeah. they want to call themselves, to publish stuff that they consider good. You get the peer review, someone might even edit it, and it might not look as fancy as a, as a, as a monograph printed out. It might be just a PDF, but it's getting but, to the people who want to read it. But,
5: but everything, in a sense, is a PDF. I mean, now in these days of Kindle yeah. and e-books, what you've got is glorified PDFs exactly. going out as, uh, as e-books. Yeah.
2: yeah. Right, we've only got five minutes left. So what I'm going to do is ask each of you for a minute to say what you actually think will happen, not what you lament or what you fear or what you wish for, but what you actually think will happen. And I haven't given you any notice of this, so I apologise for that. (laughs) David, I'll start with you, because you're the journalist who can think on his feet. Uh, This idea that we've
5: just had, I think that will happen. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because it makes sense, doesn't it? So we could do it. I mean, people here could do it. We could kind of start. So I think that is one of the things that will happen in my own industry. Don't ask me for a prediction. I really, I really can't tell you where we'll be in five years' time. Um, uh, One of the things, we I mean, it struck me when Tom was talking about Google, um, the great monoliths of Google, which in a sense is true, but Google didn't even exist 25 years ago. It didn't exist. So we have absolutely no idea what the monoliths of tomorrow or the, or, or the sub-monoliths are going to look like in 2025 20, years' time. Maybe they will grow out of the very collective, the historians' collective. Maybe it will be called, the new Google will be called the Historian's Collective, and will actually have originated <laughs> in this very room
4: tonight. Okay, well, the, my dystopian view is that Sauron, AKA Amazon, will spread its reign of evil across Middle-earth, and the structures of publishing, and presumably by extension academia, will crumble before it. Um, And the value of the book as a cultural artifact to the general public will be diminished, um, and literary culture as we've known it for the past 500 years will be um, severely emasculated. The
6: positive. Can you be the positive the, the, the,
4: the, 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 the positive. Um, uh, my, my hope is that um, you know a million flowers will bloom, and that um, the loosening of the stays, the the, the, the sense in which um, the, the divisions between academia and say the general public will loosen, but, but, but in an exciting way. And we will get websites like there's one called Row Classicism, which publishes every day links to absolutely cutting edge research, but will also publish YouTube videos of um, you know Caesar's Gallic commentaries done rap style, and and and, 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 and that seems to me a potentially exciting future. Good.
1: So, um, yeah. M- well, my. My, my, my fears and my hopes are not unlike Tom's. Um, my, my fear is that, is, and it's what Marian said at the beginning about unintended consequences, my fear is that as people scramble to try to keep alive the institutions that they're familiar with, um, that actually the unintended consequences that come out of that are so perverse that everything starts to fall apart even worse uh, than it would have. My, my hope, though, is that, is that everybody here is here because we all share uh, a faith in, a, an in and a passion for ideas and that the, that the space for what I think of as intellectual journalism for lack of a better way of thinking about it but the, that space that we all inhabit and in, in, you know we're all on slightly different edges of it but we're all in a very uh, similar space that there is the hunger for that that there are people who want to share those ideas who want to get access to those ideas and that we simply have to be uh, creative enough and also though we have to fight back against the technocrats and the plutocrats who want to control the the ways in which we get those ideas to each other and, and talk to each other about them that's why we're oh here
3: no. oh crikey um, yeah um historians not supposed to think about the future but <laughs> i i think it's a t- tremendously exciting time but i don't think it's possible to guess what the technological sort of latest thing will be or how the delivery of ideas is going to be most efficient or commercial or accessible in a year's time, let alone mm. 10 years time. So trying to sort of guess which way one should um, position oneself or industry should think ahead is, is, is more or less impossible. But I have a sense that, that tr- the traditional structures of the universities will actually be eroded by what's happening in terms of the possibility of delivering ideas um, in much more accessible and exciting ways for children and students going through universities than the traditional book. And so why pay for a lot of academics to um, Uh, pass on second-hand the ideas of the top researchers (laughs) when you might as well get the top researchers into the classroom uh, through the new technologies. So I suspect that actually the economics will reinforce changes in the university sector. Um, but my fear is that although all of this makes it terribly exciting for any collective that wants to set itself <laughs> up, it's, the problem's going to be what, what we've been hitting against all, all evening, which is how is anybody going to make any money out of it? Because I can't, I can't... I mean, David's in fear of his profession. I can see journalists, uh, might, might might be fewer of them, there might be fewer newspapers. Who's going to pay to read anybody's ideas? Why would anybody pay for academic ideas? I think the, 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 the problem is going to be that we're all going to be looking for, for new professions, but I hope that doesn't come... Well, students and still, the, will still have to be taught. Students will still have to be taught, but they don't have to be taught by as many academics as they're no. taught by now, unfortunately, because why would you go to the mediocre when you can get the best uh, with teaching assistants or someone cheaper for universities to provide mm-hmm. than you than universities are paying for now to keep, you know, pay, uh, full academics in place. So I think those structures will be changed. But, I, you know, I hope not knowing what's going to be in store in a year's time, let alone 10, I, I just trust that some some mechanism will come up by which somebody somewhere along the line can make some money out of it at the same time.
2: Well, on that cheerful (laughs) note, I'm really sorry to those of you who didn't have a chance to ask questions. I know there were lots of you there, and gosh, what an interesting evening it's been. So thank you very much to David, Tom, Sarah, Orlando. Thank you to UEA and to Editorial Intelligence. And most of all, thank you all of you for coming.